All right, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning for our final time, the book of Nehemiah. I don't know how big a deal it is, you guys, whenever we finish up a book, but man, it's a big deal for me. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I've birthed a child at some point. I know you women would be like, no, you don't, um, and I get that, but uh, whenever I, I have been in this book, studying this book, to teach this book for well over six months now, thinking through all of it, thinking through all the implications of it, working through the different pieces of it. Uh, for me, finishing up a book is a, is a really, really big deal. It just feels like a, the, 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 the exclamation point at the very end is, uh, it's a big deal for me. So I hope it's a big deal for you guys. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 10, but we're actually going to back up a little bit t- from uh, into Ezra and then kind of move forward back through all that we have covered so far. So if you've got your Bibles, you might want to just kind of turn through Ezra as we go uh, and kind of summarize some things so you can, you can back up just a little bit if you need to to the beginning of Ezra. But we'll be mainly in Nehemiah 11 and 12 uh, this morning. And as you turn there, uh, I want to ask you guys, I think I've asked you this question before. I know we've talked about this before, but what kind of movies do you like to watch? And I, I, We talked about this last night at our Front Porch Community. We've talked about this between uh, Emily and I, that we have a distinctly different opinion of the type of movies that we like to see. Uh, I prefer grittier, psychological, kind of tense movies that uh, are, are suspenseful. Emily would say stressful uh, and and uh, I, I work through those. I, I like those kind of things. Uh, Emily likes movies that make you smile and entertain you. And that's the only criteria that she has. Um, they don't even have to be good. As long as you smile and, and you're mildly entertained and you're happy at the end. If you cry at all in the movie and it's not happy tears, the movie's no good. It's a terrible movie. Um, that is basically the, the, the thing that we have to, we have to work through. Uh, her opinion is life is hard enough. And uh, there's no need to spend my extra two or three hours I have free in extra sadness. And so uh, that's a point taken, I guess, but it depends on how you, what you want out of your two to three hours. Uh, the last three chapters of Nehemiah has a little bit of both of these things, a little bit of grittiness, a little bit of happiness and smiling. Um, and we'll see by the end of our time this morning just what kind of movie we've been watching all along in Ezra and Nehemiah. Is it a thrilling triumph of human sacrifice, or not human sacrifice, that's a different kind of movie, of uh, a, a, a thrilling, uh, a, a thrilling uh, triumph of the human spirit and religious zeal that we can celebrate and be uh, very excited about, or is it a tragedy on a massive scale that we, we just can't, we can't really wrap our minds around? Where do we land in this with this book of Ezra and, ne- and Nehemiah? Uh, what kind of conclusion will we find in our movie today? So I wonder, do you remember how the movie started? Go all the way back to Ezra chapter 1. I'll read this again just to kind of jog our memories of the opening scene of this movie that we've been following. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So in order that the prophecy of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
So a secular king decides to send the Jewish people back out of his control, out of their kind of indentured servitude, slavery in exile, and send them back home. It's a stunning way to open the story because it's totally unexpected. It's virtually unprecedented in the history of the world. And it was our first hint that God was about to go to work in this situation. So the people leave, they go back with Zerubbabel, remember our guy Zerubbabel? They go back with him, the first wave of exiles that come back as they leave Persia under their control. They make their way back home, make that journey all the way back. And the building of the temple begins and they start with the altar. They start with the altar, the altar gets built, but then even once the altar gets built and the foundations for the temple are laid, Half the people there shout for joy and the other half weep because they realize that this new temple will not compare with that of the old. They're saddened. We, we keep, kind of keep on going. They're saddened as construction stops, as uh, it sits unfinished for over a decade, as they've received threats and kind of pushback from enemies in the area, and everything just kind of stops. Opposition fires up and the people of God fade away. But then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, remember we covered them too, we covered a lot of ground in these few books here. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah speak on behalf of God and they call the people to repentance and to return to the work uh, that they had uh, had given them to do. So our our, our movie kind of hits a bit of a highlight right there whenever the temple uh, finally gets finished. The people dedicate the temple and then everything kind of stops again. So we reach this moment where we're like, all right, good job, guys. Good job, people of Jerusalem. And then everything just kind of stops. Not much else happens. The people kind of go back to their homes. The temple is there. It's built. It's not anything. It's not as ornate and as great as it's supposed to be, but it's there and it's built and nothing else happens. And then we kind of went and we watched this spinoff movie of Esther and we talked about Esther for a few weeks that kind of happens during the same time frame, a movie that establishes both power and position despite all signs saying that that should not happen. It establishes power and position for Jewish citizens in this very secular kingdom. But then we come back to Jerusalem. And we get to watch Ezra as he leads the next round of exiles back. So Zerubbabel and then Ezra shows up and he he brings the people back to Jerusalem. More people come back with him. Ezra comes and when he gets there he says, wait a minute, things are not how they're supposed to be. I realize you guys have got the temple built, but you're not doing anything with it. You're not the kind of people you're supposed to be. He leads reforms, he calls the people back to spiritual integrity And then the book of Ezra kind of ends with a ho-hum ending after he reforms and leads the people through these things. Ezra kind of ends, still just in the same spot, temples built, wall is not, cities in various stages of disrepair. And then everything kind of stops again. So then comes uh, the second half of the movie, or maybe even the sequel, if you will, promising to deliver on all all the high notes that were glimpsed in the book of Ezra, but never fully delivered. After the temple was built and dedicated, the people never quite delivered on the joy and the momentum that you would hope that they would have in that moment. I mean, think about this again. Let me take you back through this. They're coming out of exile. They're coming back home. 
And so whenever you come out of exile and you come back to this place that had been gone for so long that, that honestly you've never been, maybe, maybe like grandpa had been and you'd heard stories about Jerusalem, you'd heard stories about these things, but you've never been and you don't fully appreciate what is there but you go back home and you're thinking this is it this is when i go back to my my people my heritage my land and it should be this triumphant moment but it never quite gets there even their best moments are 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 mixed with sadness and never quite delivers on what it should so then nehemiah shows up a man with some uh, a government seat of importance and prominence cupbearer to the king Nehemiah shows up, he hears about the city of Jerusalem, the disrepair that it's in, and he says, I've got to do something about this. And he shows up, comes to Jerusalem with the permission of the king, and he comes with the full weight of the king behind him. He says, you go, and you take stuff with you, and you take people with you, and you go and you build the wall exactly as you see fit, Nehemiah. And he gets to work. And this is what we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks. He's the model of hard work. The model of full confidence in God. Laser focus to finish the task at hand. And the task is to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem and provide protection and restore God's name among the people around Jerusalem. He gets to work and he refuses to back down or be distracted. Remember, he sets up the the worker with a spear in one hand and a brick in the other. When they try to lure him away into what is a suspected trap, Nehemiah will have none of it. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. The man knew what needed to be done. And he was not going to be distracted from that. He did it. 52 days. The wall is finished, which is insane. It's finished, it's dedicated. There's this massive worship service that we saw last week where the people begin to remember their heritage, remember their calling, and they seal their commitment to, this, uh, to, to God and to this covenant. They seal it with, with the covenant to remain faithful to God because now they are home. They can see God has remained faithful to them and now they promise to remain faithful to Him. Which brings us to today's text where we put a bow on things and we see how it all ends. Do we walk off in the sunset celebrating this triumph and this victory or do we have a different ending waiting for us at the end of this book? In chapter 10, what's recounted through there of Nehemiah, in chapter 10, as you, as you look in there, what you see is the list of people that sealed the covenant. And then you keep going on past that. It talks about the obligations of the covenant. So basically, it's like, this is what the people are going to do. Everything starts so well. The people are committed. It's a poor economy, but it doesn't matter. The people are set up to tithe and to do what they are supposed to do, to bring their tithe to the temple and to make sure that the temple and the priests are well taken care of. This becomes very important for us here in a few minutes. This idea that they were going to make sure that the priest in the temple was taken care of. And at the end of chapter 10, you kind of have this summary verse for all of chapter 10. And it's the final phrase that that really gets our attention. So Nehemiah 10, verse 39. 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring their contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will bring things here and we will make sure the temple and the priests are well taken care of. In the movies, they call that foreshadowing. That's what that's called. But all of chapter 10 and chapter 11 tell a very great story. It's a wonderful story. They tell the story of every person recommitting themselves. Of every person guaranteeing that they will be a part of what God has, is doing in the city and around the city. That their families will be a part of this. That they will be a part of the people of God. Some stay in Jerusalem. Some are in the surrounding towns of, uh, uh, throughout Judah. But all of them get back to work and they get back to life. But now when they go back to work and they go back to life, they have this, this commitment that's driving them that we will do what is needed to take care of the house of God. And they just go back to work. They just go back to life. And I know I said this last week, but I want to say it again. I want to make this point. This is how God does most of his work. No miracles in Ezra or Nehemiah. No, no sun standing still. The ground doesn't open up. The people don't wake up and the wall is miraculously built. Everything done in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is done by one way. One way. It's just hard work. It's just hard work. Here in chapter 10 and 11, the work is done on the wall. And it's been done by one person, one brick, one job, one task, one day at a time. And then everyone together has accomplished the task. And now, as they move forward past this, it's the same philosophy. It's why you have this list of names in chapter 10, chapter 11, and even into chapter 12. It's this list of names of all the people that are a part of this project. Of all the families that are a part of this project, everybody matters. This is how God does most of his work throughout history. One day, one person, one task at a time. We like to talk a lot in the, in the church world about 10-year visions and 5-year visions and 20-year visions and grand plans for ourselves and for our churches and those things are usually fine. They have a place. They can be helpful strategically. But the work of God is done by the people of God one day at a time, one moment at a time. This is true. Uh, this was true of Israel. This was true of the people Nehemiah was leading. This is true of us here at Providence. And this is true for you in your own life as well. Your kids grow one day at a time. Your job happens one day at a time. You are not called to raise your kids in one grand moment, but in 18 years or more of one day at a time. One day after another day after another day. 
We here at Providence are not called to grow a church overnight, to evangelize all of Jefferson County overnight, to make disciples of everyone everywhere overnight. We are called to be faithful to God and to His His Word one day at a time. That's true of the church. That's true of you as individuals as well. Be faithful to the task. Make disciples day by day, moment by moment. So my question for you is not how many of you are going how, how many people are you going to lead to Jesus this year? My question is are you going to be faithful to whatever piece of disciple making Jesus has called you to today? Today. In your own life, in following Jesus and becoming a more faithful disciple? And how you care and work for others. Are you going to be faithful to whatever piece of disciple making Jesus has called you to today? That is the question every day when we wake up. Are you being faithful to being a disciple and to making a disciple today? The answer for a lot of days in Jerusalem was, yes, we're going to be faithful. They did well for a period of time. They said, yes, we are going to be a light to the nations. We, we came here for that purpose. We are. We want to follow God. And we will. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate with dedication, with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, with harps, with, with lyres. They, they said, let's do all these things. Let's celebrate. Let's, let's remember what God has done. And let's commit ourselves to Him. And let's be faithful in celebration today. They celebrate the building of the wall. They, they, they return and they resettle the people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. And the clear truth to them is that God has brought them here thus far just like their ancestors whom god was faithful to even when it looked like all hope was lost all of chapter 12 then becomes the rest of chapter 12 becomes this description of this celebration you can look at it in there about how they put different people in different places on the wall so this was not like a localized worship service this was the whole city spread out throughout the wall this massive worship service of of singers and and uh, cymbals and flute players and all this other stuff. In verse 43 of chapter 12, it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Man, that's a good story. Boom! In scene, roll credits, play the triumphant music of the, the bands on the wall in celebration. That, Nehemiah, is how you end a story. That is how you tell the story of a faithful God. You end on a high note with good news. Everybody's smiling when they walk out of the theater. They all live happily ever after. Emily likes that movie. That's a good movie for her. Everybody's happy on that one. Honestly, we all like that movie. Who doesn't like a a big triumphant movie like that at the end? It's really a beautiful scene. And it's one we should not skip over too fast. The people are celebrating the faithfulness of God in the midst of what seemed to be 
their doom. The exile is over. The people have returned. The temple is built. The wall is established. Things are as close as they can be to just exactly what they should be. That's a win. That's a good day. That's a good moment. This should be celebrated. It is beautiful. It is a testimony to God's faithfulness to His people and to His promise that He made to them. It should give you pause and reason to celebrate too. You see, I hope whenever you read these Old Testament stories and you hear about God's faithfulness in the midst of failure, when you read these Old Testament stories, you don't read them as like abstract stories to people that, uh, to, for people a long time ago that have nothing to do with you. You see, we talk about faith a lot here at Providence. We talk about faith a lot because the New Testament talks a lot about faith. But what I always tell you is we do not have a blind faith. We are not stepping out into nothing. We have a faith that is rooted in something. We have a faith that is rooted in the fact that God, time and time and time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, has proven that He is faithful to His promises. And so whenever we read this story about Nehemiah, about Ezra, and about the exiles returning, we don't just read that as like, oh, that's a cool history lesson. We should read that in a way that says, yes, I I see that. I recognize that. Yes, because I know he was faithful to Nehemiah and to all those exiles, I now know he is faithful to me too. So whenever our faith in Jesus, so this is what brings us here, our faith that we need where we we would have salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, all of those things. This is not a just throw it into the the ocean and hope the bottle comes back to us, you know, against all odds type of faith. This is a faith rooted in a people and in a God who have said, God is faithful and I will trust him. That is the faith that we have. Full confidence that God keeps His promises. And full confidence based on full evidence that tells us time and time again that is how He works. This is one of the shining examples in the Old Testament of it. But if you've got your Bibles open and you are looking in chapter 12, what you see is that our story does not end in chapter 12. There's more words on the pages here that we have to deal with. So we aren't quite at the end of our story. Stop the credits. There's a little more story to be told. So we keep reading in chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. This is recounting another story from the Old Testament. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. This is not a racial thing. This is not an ethnic thing. This is a religious thing. Remember, we talked about this idea of syncretism. Do you remember that word, syncretism? Where all the religions kind of blend together? The whole point in this prohibition is to keep the religions from from blending together. 
keep themselves separated, pure worship of Yahweh, of God alone. And so effectively what's happened now is they've kept reading the law of Moses. Things continue to be unveiled to them that they had done wrong that they needed to repent of. And up until this point, they had done that. It says here in verse 3 that they did that. They separated from those of foreign descent. This is echoes of the end of the book of Ezra where they had to divorce the foreign wives. But then we get to verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the, the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, Remember Tobiah, our friend Tobiah from chapter 4? One of the enemies of Nehemiah? He was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So effectively what has happened here is Tobiah, an Ammonite, who we just read in the first verse that the Ammonites were not to, have, not to be in the house of God at all, Tobiah has kind of weaseled his way in. He's a crafty guy. He had failed in his opposition to Nehemiah, but after everything's been built, he figures, you know what? If you can't beat him, you better join him. And so he kind of comes in through a side door, weasels his way in, he's married a Jewish woman, his son uh, has married a Jewish woman, And he kind of sidesteps his way into the Jewish community. And as a nobleman in the area, evidently, most of the people kind of turned their head uh, to the side whenever he was there because they wanted to kind of allow him to be in there because it gave greater influence to the people of Israel in the area, at least in their minds. Oh, this guy is well-known and well-connected in the area. What's it going to hurt if we allow him to come and be a part of things? He'd established some influential friendships in the city, some sort of relationship, uh, family relationship here to the priest in the temple. And the priest had essentially allowed him to set up shop within the temple walls. A place that would have given him religious and uh, societally important status. It would have put him at the, the hub of activity in Jerusalem. And it would have made him uh, even more important than he already was and given him clout in the city that no non-Jew would deserve. He would have had tremendous standing on this basis. You say, well, how did Nehemiah let this happen? I thought Nehemiah was all about kind of protecting this and setting things up. Well, he didn't exactly. Nehemiah had returned to the king to give a report of all that had happened. And we know for a fact that the journey is at least a 55-day journey, 60-day journey back to where it is assumed that the king might be. And then you've got another 60-day journey back. So he's got at least four months there where he's going to be out, potentially longer if he does any business at all in town. So probably at least six months, Nehemiah is going to be gone in order to go and deliver this report back to the king. And Tob- Tobiah says, this is my opportunity. This is when I will sneak in there. And so while Nehemiah was gone, this happened. But oh man, Nehemiah comes back. And this is verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. 
preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders that they clean the chambers and brought back their vessels to the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah comes back, and he literally cleans house. He just starts chucking kitchen chairs out into, the, out into the, the courtyard. He just starts chucking the couch out into the courtyard. You can imagine the scene that this would have been. All the furniture just starts flinging out the door. Nehemiah is not happy. He has no patience, no time for this kind of stuff. He leaves for six months, and when he comes back, this has already begun to happen. But he does not just stop there. He doesn't stop there because the sin doesn't stop there. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So basically what this means when it talks about the Levites, that's talking about the priests and the uh, attendants to the temple, what had happened is they had stopped the tithing that they had promised to do in chapter 10. Do you remember whenever they said, we will not neglect the house of the Lord? Guess what happened? They neglected the house of the Lord. They stopped tithing. They stopped bringing the stuff in. So the Levites and the singers, those that, that attended to the business of the church, the business of the temple, they didn't have anything to eat. They had to go and figure out, how can we just you know, live? We've got to make a living. They're not bringing the tithe in, so what did they have to do? They had to go out and they had to work the fields. They had to go out and they had to get their own food because nobody was bringing the food to them. So verse 11 Nehemiah says, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. So Nehemiah is like, what in the world, guys? I leave for six months and this is what happens. I leave for six months and this is the direction that you guys go. They didn't continue the work that they promised, that they signed and they sealed a covenant before God saying, we will do this. But the people didn't hold up their end of the deal. It was required that everybody participate in this if it was going to work. Everybody had to do their part. Everybody had to pull their weight. Everybody had to do their thing. And if they didn't, the system was going to fall apart. That's how it was designed to work. For the sake of time, I'll make this small point for us. But the same is true for us today. When you don't show up at church, when you don't give to the mission of Providence, when you don't serve in whatever capacity you can, the people of Providence are the ones that suffer from your lack of commitment. This is not some like passive-aggressive preacher talk where I'm trying to like call you out without calling you out. I'm just telling you, this is how this works. If providence is going to be what providence has been called to be, it's required that the people of providence do the work of God. Plain and simple. Not that the pastor does. Not that the elders do. Certainly we have our task and our things to do. Not that the staff does. All of us have our work to do. But the work of the church is done by the people of God. And so I'm not like up here thinking, okay, this person's not doing this and this person's not doing this. I hope they hear this message well. I'm telling you to consider yourself, how is it that you should be serving the people of God? And wherever it is that you are not serving the people of God, the people of God are missing you. It's important 
that you follow through. When you consume without serving, you rob the church of the gifts that God has given you to bless the church with. That's how spiritual gifts work. There's so many things that we can plug you into. Things that are that are, that, are, that are temporary, things that are long-term, things that are teaching, things that are not teaching, things that are behind the scenes, things that are in the morning, things that are in other times. God has designed the church to thrive on your spiritual gifts. That's why you have them. So it was here with the people of God. God's people were suffering because the rest of God's people were not faithful. And it just keeps going in chapter 13. Nehemiah learns that they aren't keeping the Sabbath. He shuts the door to the gates on the Sabbath, says nobody gets in on the Sabbath because we are resting. They were so, so used to not keeping the Sabbath that they had had vendors basically show up for work on a, on a, on a Saturday uh, on the Sabbath, and they got, they got locked outside the gates because Nehemiah had shut the door. They were like, well, hey, we're here to make some money because you guys are willing customers on the Sabbath, so we're here. Nehemiah shuts the gate, says, no more, not going to do that either. It just kind of keeps on going of the different things that are happening. The verse 23 through 25, I think, gives us a good summary based off all the things that we've looked at through Ezra and Nehemiah. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, 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 and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people so here we are again the intermarriage is back it's back man that's such a telling little sentence there right they could not speak the language of judah they could not speak the language of their people they did not know yahweh they knew the gods of they knew the gods of ashdod they knew the gods of of their other their other parents and the other religions that they were a part of they knew those gods they knew that language they did not know yahweh they did not know Yahweh. It's a telling indictment of how far the people had fallen. So what does Nehemiah do in verse 25? And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. This is pastoral license right here. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons to take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, what do we say about this, what Nehemiah has done here? He, he drags them out in the street. He beats them. Says he pulled out their hair. We're not sure, but most commentators, their best guess is that that's probably pulling out the beards of the men. Because that was a sign of repentance and of, uh, uh, of guilt and repentance before God that they were in, in lament, they were in mourning for their sin. And so it, basically, it's, it's effectively Nehemiah saying, you won't repent, I'll repent for you. Ripping out their hair. That's pretty much, that, that's, that's the best guess of most commentators. Listen, I'll be honest with you. This is just straight up abusive. I don't know how else to describe it. That's just what it is. It's important for us to remember when we read this stuff, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is just explaining what happened. This is not saying pastors have at it. This is not what we're talking about. This is not what's being laid out here. But it does also show the seriousness with which Nehemiah took the sin. So again, I've told you throughout this, I have trouble using Nehemiah as a, as a carte blanche, like this is how to be a great leader. 
uh, because I'm not going to put this in any leadership curriculum that I'm going to be putting together. Um, but the seriousness with which he takes sin and says, we will not have this in this place is something that we need to take note of. Nehemiah says, no more, we will not do this. They're back at it. This is, this is what sent them into exile in the first place. Syncretism, marrying foreign wives, not worshiping Yahweh the way they have been called. They're doing it again. And the same thing is happening. They're forgetting their heritage. They're forgetting their God. And Nehemiah says, enough. You can sense his frustration. You can sense his anger and his desperation. He's furious. As soon as he leaves, it all falls apart. And then we have the final two verses that Nehemiah signs off with in this book. Verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that's it. You can almost hear the reserved tone. I mean, maybe I'm reading that into it, but man, I feel it. It's not that Nehemiah is defeatist. But the optimism of chapter 1, it's gone. The cold, hard reality is that the people of God are terrible. They don't listen. They don't remain faithful. Even whenever God is shown to be miraculously faithful in the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the temple, bringing the people back home out of exile, the people make the covenant, celebrate, do all the right things, and they're right back in the same problem again this is how it ends he throws out those that have broken the covenant he reestablishes the priests to their work and he prays god help me what a terrible ending to a triumphant book nehemiah is effectively alone in his leadership he's exasperated he's frustrated feeling defeated and again, this is not how it's supposed to be. The return from exile had taken over a hundred years, but it's supposed to be complete now. This is supposed to be that moment of triumph. The city is supposed to be growing economically with the safety of the walls now in place, with the people back to their work in their fields and in their homes. Spiritually, the temple is supposed to be active and it's supposed to be uh, the, the place where the law is read and the people return to God as they did in chapters 9 and 10. And yet here they are again, dealing with the same sins, the same problems that sent them into exile to begin with. Like a moth to a flame. They cannot resist themselves. And that's it. There's no more words after that for this book. It is a depressing, unsatisfying ending to what should be a joyful, triumphant book. And that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point of the book of Nehemiah. It's exactly the point of the entire Old Testament. This effectively ends the story of the Old Testament. This is about 400... 
some odd years, 430 years or so before Jesus would come. We have a couple of other prophets that deliver some, uh, uh, some small messages, but as far as history of the, the people of Israel go, this is it. This is where their story ends until we have over 400 years of silence. The Old Testament is an unsatisfying book for us to read. Because it's the same story over and over and over and over again. A faithful God and unfaithful people. A faithful God and unfaithful people. A faithful God and unfaithful people. A God who at the very beginning of the story made a covenant and said, made a covenant with Abraham while he was asleep. So this was not, this is not conditional upon Abraham's ability to obey and keep the covenant. This is not conditional on Israel's ability to keep the covenant. It is one-sided where God says, I'll be faithful to you and your people. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how they completely missed the point, did not stay faithful, but God did. I mean, it's, it's over and over. It's every story. Sometimes in, in micro, sometimes in macro, sometimes in the full meta-narrative of the story. But that's the story. It is the overwhelming narrative of the Old Testament. So it is the overwhelming story of all humanity. So it is our story too. The point is clear at this point. Something else must be done because Israel can't do this. Something else must be done because we can't do this. This book and the Old Testament story is, has failure woven into its fabric ever since chapter 3 of Genesis. Failure after failure. We think of our Old Testament stories. We think of all the guys in the Old Testament. We think of them as heroes. But even the best of the Old Testament are failures in almost every way. The story of Nehemiah shouts for a redeemer. Shouts for someone that says, make this right for us. I I know, God, you've made it right, but we've messed it up again. And this is not how it's supposed to be. Help us get to how it's supposed to be. The Old Testament begs us to look to the person who has the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you guys have gotten one of those, it says, someone that will make all the sad stories come untrue. Do you feel the weight of the sin of Israel? Do you feel the weight of your own sin? Because the story of the people of Israel should sound and feel very, very familiar to you. As much as we want to be like, oh, you idiot. We, we know we've said the same thing to us. Ah, oh, you idiot. You said the same thing to yourself. Sinners trying to fix ourselves and failing at every turn. Sinners trying to be faithful to God and failing faster than we can even get the first verse memorized. Sinners broken by the fall, longing for home and finding nothing that can get us there title of the series is the long road home god's faithfulness in the far country this is the long road home for us 
There are no shortcuts. And you can't, work, you can't walk far enough or persevere long enough to get there. Sinners broken by the fall, longing for home, and trying to figure out how we would ever get back. Back to the garden before the fall. No amount of endurance, no amount of wishful thinking. We need someone that can bring us all the way home. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. That that long road that we could never walk, someone has walked it for us. That long road that would bring us home that we can't seem to to make it down before we stumble and fall on our face again, there is someone that will carry us down that road, that will take us there. We are a broken people far from home in need of a Redeemer to make things right. And praise God, Jesus is that. This is what Jesus does. He brings us all the way home. He delivers us from sin, from unfaithfulness, from our weakness, and He draws us to Him. He draws us home. Jesus in the book of Nehemiah, you can make some connections between Nehemiah's leadership and kind of draw out some Christ-like references in there. But honestly, I think where you see Jesus in the book of Nehemiah is right there in the next verse, right after the end of the book. Where you finish and you're like, no, this is not how this is supposed to end. I need another chapter. Welcome to Christmas Day. And then welcome to Easter and the resurrection and the one who can make us whole and bring us home and make things how they are supposed to be. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we're not left in the far country. But even in the far country, God is faithful. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we rejoice. We rejoice and we, 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 we shout with joy that you have not left us in the far country. But even as we shout for joy, we see the people of Israel who would shout for joy and we realize we too will stumble and fall again. But just as you were faithful to them, we cling to that faithfulness to us today not found in anything else this world has to offer, all the cheap substitutes for home, all the cheap substitutes to make us feel comfortable in this world, in a world we were never meant to feel comfortable in once it was broken by sin. Father, we repent of all those things. We ask that you would only give us satisfaction in our one true home with you in perfect peace and harmony because of the blood of Christ. Father, we plead for forgiveness as we falter and fail again. We place ourselves at the foot of the cross, desperate in need of mercy, clinging to the promise that you will give us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.